Good morning. Have you ever felt that you needed to live up to expectations? That um, very often I hear young people, not just young people, many people say, don't judge me, right? Um, It's a cry for almost being accepted as we are. Authenticity. That's a word that comes up quite often these days. We look for authenticity in our leaders as well, that their words actually match their lives, um, their behaviours match um, what they profess. I've said this before, and I continue to maintain that the word authentic is meaningless by itself. In fact, by itself, it's often an excuse for bad behaviours. And I recall in my CG many, many years ago, so please don't look at present members, it's different, okay? Uh, They came one evening and that day, somehow everyone seemed tired, unprepared, detached. Some even slept during our conversations. On the one hand, I felt flattered that they felt safe in our homes to be themselves. On the other hand, I was very frustrated because what do you do? I mean, you prepare to lead the conversation, and the whole group was sullen and sleepy. Was this really what authenticity means? There was a time that authentic was used as an alternative to absolute truth, where people were no longer comfortable with the Bible says this, but it's what I choose to believe. No longer what the dictionary definition says, but a lot of people say, oh, to me, this word means this, and they'll offer their own spin on it. Now, why is it storming now? It's not a storm, it's a drizzle. To me, this is a storm. And they kind of take their own definitions to things. There's no longer biological definitions of male and female. It's what I identify with. That's being authentic, right? You know, self-esteem, feeling good about myself, and authenticity, being and doing whatever I want, is the continuing escalation into self-centeredness. And I suggest the very antithesis of the biblical values of dying to self, what God wants, and others-centeredness. And I like us to stop using the word authentic, unqualified. Authentic is a good word. It's a great word. It means being real. But the question is, real to what? And it has to have a reference. It cannot stand by itself. Authentic self is bad news. It's the height of selfishness. But if you claim the name of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, then a great question to ask is, What does an authentic follower of Jesus look like? And that's the title today. Are the slides on? Oh. Every week, our sermons and Bible study seeks to unpack that a little bit more. What does an authentic faith look like. Last week, we heard that complaining is a sin. In fact, a deadly sin. Thank you, Pastor Bunsing. 
In Numbers 11, the people murmured among themselves and they were judged, fire and food poisoning. Many people died. Complaining is a sin, one of the most insidious sins of the tongue. So when I listen to that sermon, as a good Christian, I want to avoid sin. I want to stop complaining. I want to live up to expectations of what a good Christian is supposed to do and be. But in an effort to express an authentic faith, feelings end up being suppressed. And if I suppress and suppress and suppress, eventually it comes out worse. Outwardly, I say the right things, but inwardly is an intensifying discontent. It ends up being hypocritical, which is the opposite of authentic. So what do you do? Cannot complain? Cannot complain? How? One of the reasons many young people leave the faith is there, a, is there is a perceived hypocrisy in their parents' faith, in the faith of professed Christians they know. And Christianity is viewed as a stereotype, or, or the stereotype Christianity is viewed as an outdated do this, do that, or don't do this, don't do that. How does trying to live an authentic faith end up being something that is hypocritical and inauthentic. And I suggest that in today's passage, we see Miriam and Aaron doing well for many years. This is not working. Doing well for many years, supporting their little brother Moses and his leadership, but there might have been a growing dissatisfaction in them. Maybe they never really got over that their little brother was now the leader and lawgiver. But we must continue to do the right thing and support him. We are co-leaders after all. But there's an internal dissatisfaction growing and suppressed and it starts to leak. Before that. They, he says the lawgiver, but he himself never keep the law. He says stay pure in but he took a Cushite wife. What is this, double standards or what? And it reached a tipping point and they explode. You don't want to suppress your feelings because you run the risk of exploding one day. So how? I think that's the warning of Numbers 12. Numbers 11 says don't complain. It's a deadly sin. Numbers 12 says don't suppress because you might explode one day. If you don't explode, you may implode, burn out, three, quit the marriage. Do you have feelings of discontent this morning? Whether it's towards your leaders, towards your spouse, your parents, your children, Do you have dissatisfaction towards your current situation, your job, your house, your phone? <laughs> Must have the latest and greatest. I'd like to read the text together with us and see what we may learn. Begins with maybe three fun facts from this text I'd like to raise for us. This is actually one of the more tricky texts in the book of Numbers, and there are often three questions that interpreters have to grapple with. The first one is about Moses' wife. 
Second one was Moses himself, and the third one is about Miriam's leprosy. So Numbers 12, 1, it's, if it's, you don't see it up there, you can follow in the Bible. Numbers 12, 1, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they ask? Hasn't he also spoken through us? Well, the Lord heard this. Well, the question is, who is Moses' wife? And those of you who remember your Exodus story will know that his wife was Zipporah, daughter of the Midianite priest, Jethro. So Moses' wife was a Midianite. So why is she now called a Cushite? Now, the simplest answer is that it, um, Zipporah, the original wife, died and Moses remarried a Cushite wife triggering this whole incident. That's the easiest answer. But there's another suggestion that it was still Zipporah, and she's a Midianite by tribe, but racially, she was Cushite. Like we say, you're Singaporean Chinese, right? Singaporean tribally or nationally, but Chinese racially or ethnically. What's the significance? Midianites, by the way, are descended by, from Abraham through his third wife, Keturah, and so in some ways, if his wife was a Midianite, that's okay, he's still in the broader family. But Cushites um, were believed to be from North Africa, and some Bible translations says Ethiopian. Yeah? So they are characteristically very dark-skinned. And if this was reference, if Cushite was a reference to Zipporah's complexion, this is in fact a statement of racial prejudice, crudely, but she's black. So there you go, fun fact. Go study that a bit more in your Bible study. Numbers 12, three. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. All right, wait a minute. Who wrote Numbers again? Moses, right? And this verse says Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. So Moses is saying that he himself is the most humble man on earth. It doesn't sound very humble. Again, one answer is that Moses didn't write this verse. It was added in later by an editor or someone trying to explain the text a little bit more. And they do that. Some early teachers would add notes to the margins of the scroll just to expand it, explain certain points. Maybe somebody made a scribble to explain why Moses didn't defend himself and therefore God had to come in. He was so humble, you see, so God had to come in and defend him. But eventually it became to be read as part of the text. That's one explanation. But that actually raises other questions about overall mosaic authorship. There's another suggestion, and that is the Hebrew word, an, I can't pronounce this, anau, anaui. It literally means to be bowed down. And you can be bowed down by force, that means being subdued. You can be bowed down by willing submission, that humble, meek idea. Or you can be bowed down by the weight of care and troubles. That means to be miserable or afflicted. You know that third meaning, miserable, really works well in the context of this chapter. After all, all the complaining he dealt with in Numbers 11, he literally told God, that's too much. Did I give birth to 600,000 people? I'm going to take care of them. If that's the case, kill me now. Right? And now, 
his own brother and sister attack him. And it wasn't a trivial attack. It was potentially a racist attack against his wife, targeted to undermine his leadership and elevate themselves. It could easily have been the final straw that pushed him over the edge. And he wrote, Moses was a very miserable man, more miserable than anyone else on the face of the earth, reflecting that broken desperation he felt at that time. But you know what? This is my view. Moses wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and while he certainly could have meant miserable in his original writing, you know what? Under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, it could well have taken on that broader semantic definition of humility. In the infinite wisdom of God, humble becomes a perfect bridge why God himself stepped in to defend Moses. When he came to the end of himself, he couldn't or wouldn't defend himself. He was so humble, he was willing to suffer criticism and misunderstanding, unwilling to shame his brother and sister who were co-leaders with himself. He wouldn't defend himself, so God did. Moses was so humble, more humble than anyone on the face of the earth, that even against such a malicious attack, and we will see in verse 13, he quickly pleaded, for God to heal Miriam. He never took it to heart. He was so giving, so emptied of pride and ego. So fun fact two, it could easily mean both miserable and amazingly humble. Okay, I'm going to read the next stretch now, more to go. Verse four onwards. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out of the tent of meeting, all three of you. You notice God heard their conversation, so be careful your private complaints. Nobody else may hear, but God hears, and in this case, God called them out. So the three of them went out, and the Lord came in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance of the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of God, of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord burned against them, and then he left them. When the cloud lifted from the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became white as snow. That word leprosy is another interesting word. Uh, Zara'at, it's largely translated leprosy, but you know, it doesn't actually indicate a specific disease. What is clear is that it wasn't leprosy. Leprosy wasn't even known in that part of the world till many years later. Zara was basically a skin disease. The key to understanding this was that it is a spiritually based affliction. And the Hebrew of early Israel thinking is whatever is seen on the outside is a reflection of what's on the inside. And that's reinforced by this whole idea of ritual uncleanness. Yeah, that's why you have to maintain this outward purity so that inside you can also be in the right frame to approach God. 
and it was a basic teaching about the holiness of God, but we need to grow up from that. In the New Testament, Jesus clearly supersedes this almost childish thinking. You can look good on the outside like whitewashed tombs, but inside be simply rotting flesh. Which brings us back to the question of authenticity and what does congruence mean being inside and outside? Verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, if her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Okay, don't get too sidetracked by that. Uh, it sounds very like, what? What father does that? But it simply means parental discipline already requires a period to redeem. How much more godly discipline? So confine her outside the camp for seven days, and after that she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the tent for seven days, and the people did not move until she was brought back. You see, Miriam was still a leader of Israel. Where leaders sin, everyone suffers. Think Russia. That's the weight of leadership. And the, the higher the leadership, the heavier the accountability. But after she came back, verse 16, the people left Hazaroth and encamped in the desert of Paran, which begins the next leg of their travel episode. So that's the text broadly. And transparently, it warns of rebelling against God's chosen leader. But I'd like to look at it from a slightly different angle by thinking through the three characters here of Aaron, Miriam, and Moses. So three vignettes in that sense. Aaron, the people pleaser, Miriam, whom I call the backseat driver, and Moses, the unique Jesus figure. Aaron, the Bible presents two slightly contradictory views of Aaron, one positive, one negative. Broadly, whenever Aaron is named with Moses, he is presented much more favorably. Right at the start, he was Moses' spokesperson before Pharaoh. He was also accorded great reverence as the high priest, the first high priest. But you realize something. Whenever we read Aaron apart from Moses, he gets into trouble. He seems more interested in pleasing the people around him. Think of the golden calf incident when Moses was a long time in the mountains and the people were impatient, make us a God, and so he did so. And he led the people astray because he wanted to please them, maybe afraid of hurting and upsetting them. Here, he was at risk of being led astray by Miriam. Aaron, Aaron was presented positively when he was with Moses, but negatively, whenever he allowed his ear to be taken by others, he went astray. So lesson, for those of us for whom others' opinion is important, you need to stay close to God. You need to cultivate that relationship so that God's opinion becomes far more important than any other voices. Charitably, I called Aaron the people pleaser. Less charitably, spineless. Miriam, the strong personality, the would-be leader with maybe some unresolved issues about being second in command. 
and charitably I call her backseat driver, quick to tell others what to do, though she herself isn't in the driver's seat. Now, if you think back about Miriam's life, as a younger teen, maybe even pre-teen, she was bold enough to approach the princess of Egypt and offer to look after the infant Moses. When I was a kid, I didn't even, or primary one, I didn't even talk to primary two, much less the princess. It takes a certain boldness to do that. In Exodus 15, after the triumphant crossing of the Red Sea where the entire Egyptian army was drowned and they break out in this celebratory song, it was Miriam who led the people in songs of exuberant praise. Now, if you read Exodus 15, it talks about Moses' praise first and Miriam later, but earliest traditions say that Miriam was the first to lead the people in that song. So she's certainly a dominant personality who makes things happen, and she's at her best when she is resolved in her role under the authority of God. The risk is overreach. Impatience with God and taking things into her own hand. So lesson here, when there is impatience and suppressing the issue, what's needed is an outlet. And I think Numbers 11 gives us a good clue you need to voice such impatience to God. If you don't raise it to God and you murmur and complain, it ends up being complaining at God or about God, and that's the sin of rebellion. I'll say a bit more about this in a moment. Thirdly, Jesus, the, the, the Moses, the Jesus figure. Many times we read this and too quickly relate this to leadership where Moses is God's anointed, and we shouldn't complain about the Lord's anointed. Take a bit of caution. I'm not sure leaders should too quickly compare themselves to Moses. That was pretty much the mistake that Miriam and Aaron made. Numbers 12 is significant in presenting Moses as a Jesus figure. You see the comparison. Yeah. Humble one of a kind, speaks with God face to face, sees the form of God. And later, Aaron prays to God through Moses. And Aaron calls Moses Lord. Theologically, Numbers 12 functions as presenting Moses as a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of, of Jesus. But we will later read Moses, the closest to God the human being has ever lived, himself would fall short in eight short chapters when he struck the rock for water. I couldn't resist this. As Moses struck the rock, Will Smith struck Chris Rock. <laughs> and they both face the consequences. Will Smith is now banned for 10 years, and Moses was banned forever. Now, leaders are flawed people. Even the best of us fail, and we all need a savior. Being relational like Aaron is a good thing, but the trap becomes fearing people's opinion too much. Wanting to keep people happy becomes more important than pleasing God and doing the right thing. Being bold and assertive like Miriam is great. And some of these people have done the greatest exploits for God. 
the trap is overreach. And when God's ways are unclear, you become impatient and you engineer the results on your own. That moment of weakness could risk eternal consequences. So what do you do? Three strategies for being authentic in faith, particularly when facing dissatisfactions. First one, take it to God. As I mentioned just now, there's a difference between complaining to God and complaining about God. The first one is right, the second one is sin. That's the lesson of Numbers 11. See, the people complained about their situations, forgetting the mercies and provision of God by earlier days, yet they were complaining about God. You put me in this situation. And for that, they faced the wrath of God. The greatest, one of the greatest Old Testament sins mentioned is faithlessness. In other words, idolatry. But Moses took his complaints to God and received practical help on shared leadership. And here in Numbers 12, we see God himself defending Moses. One of the most useful and powerful lessons I learned in combating the strategy of Satan when facing temptation is turn it around to become a prompt towards God. Turn it into a faith moment where Satan stirs dissatisfaction within us. He often wants to cause us to fall into the sin of complaining. But if when dissatisfaction arises, instead of complaining, we turn to God, then the devil's scheme backfires. And he's no fool. He would stop that way of tempting you after some time because it's not working. And the temptation decrease as we stop becoming a complaining people. But what does complaining to God look like? Firstly, there's no better place than reading the Psalms. Honesty, not hostility in your words. My favorites are Psalm 13, which has a happy ending, and Psalm 88, which is the only psalm unresolved. still unresolved, and you have to figure out why. If I had 30 more minutes, I'd love to unpack that more for you. But for now, I invite you to read them on your own, an open invitation to chat if you want to further. Secondly, I've come to learn that behind every complaint is a wish. Behind every complaint is a wish. But the emotion obscures that wish, and it comes out as a complaint. So ask God to help you clarify your wish. In Moses, in verse, uh, in chapter, um, in, in Numbers 11, I believe his wish was for a people to express their content in God through praises. So he could have prayed that they recall his goodness and past faithfulness and prayed that when the manna that when comes, they would marvel at the miraculous daily provision. I wonder what Miriam and Aaron's wish was for Moses in this chapter. Maybe they wanted to share his load. Maybe they saw his toil and, the, and missed his carefree days of just relating with them as brother and sister. You know, God, what does Moses think he's doing? He's killing himself. Does he think he's Superman or what? I mean, he just prayed, I want to die. Come on, it's obviously too much for him. You know, he should come to me. I'm his big sister. It's my job to protect him. 
Is it? Yeah, of course, and maybe not. I suppose that's really your job, isn't it, God, to protect him? I suppose I should learn to let go. But I also want him to know that we're here for him. It's not just Zipporah, you know. We love him too. Maybe they wish for a closeness where they shared everything and had the joy of doing so. But oh, how the devil took a beautiful motivation and sentiment and changed it to a disgruntled, aren't we leaders too? At the beginning of the message, I asked, what's your dissatisfaction? With job, spouse, pay, circumstance? Think further. Have a chat with God. What's your wish? Not just a quick answer, but take time to deepen that. Second strategy, transcend your particular weakness. Aaron, the people pleaser, needs to spend more time with God. See, the Aaron types want to please the people they hang out with, and he was with Moses. He's, the Bible is full of his praises. When he's not, he, he's influenced more by people to build a golden calf and led astray by Miriam. Cultivate a relationship with God such that his friendship and his pleasure is your greatest delight. For Miriam, the unresolved backseat driver, they serve best under authority. Miriam of Numbers 12 is when such leaders overstep. Beware the insidiousness of disrespecting your authority structure. Whether it is a human boss at work, a cell leader or pastor in church, your boldness and confidence can be greatly used by God. See Miriam as a young child, boldly approaching a princess, bringing the infant Moses back to her family. See Miriam, the co-leader, leading her people in exuberant praise. Pride is their greatest downfall. Worse, dragging others down with them. First Aaron, and then all the people suffered her consequences with her. 600,000 at least, men only, possibly 2 million and more, delayed for seven days because of her pride. Proverbs 30 says this, Under three things the earth quakes, under four it cannot bear up. Under a slave when he becomes king, a fool when he's satisfied with food, an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she supplants her mistress. Overreach. My advice for Miriam, Miriam types, you have influence, lots of it, but acting ahead of yourself brings trouble, not just for yourself, but for countless others. Others, speak to God. Speak to God before you speak to others of your unhappiness. Strategy one is for you. Finally, know your why. Why would you want to keep pure and overcome this particular temptation? Of course, the model answer is for God. And one of my life, in my life, one of the greatest graces the Lord has given me to protect my faith are loved ones. Many years ago, when we were as Peninsula Evangelical Free Church, I had the joy of co-leading the, the youth fellowship. Recognize people up there. And I wanted to do, I wanted to be a good leader to the young people. My fear was succumbing to temptation being found or caught in sin, and then in turn hurting the faith of my then very young charges. 
I remember one occasion being very naive at work. We were entertaining in late, and I suddenly found myself in a very compromising situation. What saved me in part? This picture. I remember thinking, if I succumb to temptation and shipwreck my faith, what would it do to these young lives? And with much thanksgiving to God, I came out of that faith intact. Today, my greatest motivation of staying pure is my family. My fear of hurting them through doing something silly. That fear, more than anything else, motivates me to guard my life, my integrity. Last night, my daughter reminded me that once I swore at another driver while driving. <sighs> Happened when she was quite little. My excuse was one of those days that every car seemed to be driving badly and cutting in. The last straw, this guy tried to cut in, he clipped my wing mirror, so... Sup suppress, 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 explode. Thank God it was contained. My, tes my testimony was largely intact, although I was brought down a notch more human to her that day. But in this sermon, the Lord moved me to consider if I was like Aaron, a people pleaser, more concerned how they might think of me than what he thinks of me. I realized through his nudgings that even as precious as important these relationships are to me, they, are a, they, are, they were my training ground for considering others before myself. Now, you know, I don't think they realize how much that I need them and how much they protect me. Every hug and kiss is as much communicating my love for them as it is communicating to self. Don't do anything silly. Don't hurt them. Don't let them down. But I could almost hear God saying, it's time to graduate from that. It's time to grow up. It's not just about what they think. It's about what I think, after all. And this, my friends, is the progression of faith to guard against that moment of weakness. That's my why. <laughs> What's yours? In summary, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up, please. In summary, this is what I like to call an authentic faith, particularly when facing dissatisfactions. One, know the high calling. Walk in a manner worthy of it, not on the whim of emotion, which is just bad behavior, under the flimsy excuse of unqualified authenticity. But secondly, also acknowledge and recognize that human weakness will create dissatisfaction within. The answer is not to complain, for that is unbecoming. It is plainly sin. The answer is also not to suppress it and fake a saint-like no problem. That's inauthentic as well and will one day explode, as Moses in Numbers 20. But an authentic faith takes it to God, as Moses did in Numbers 11. Pour out your complaints to him, not rant about the situation which is tantamount to rebellion, but an authentic faith clarifies your wish, the real desire behind the complaint. Meditate on the Psalms like 13 and 18 to help you pray. This is the best strategy. When the devil tempts you to sin, use that temptation to bring you closer to God, more loving towards people. And his strategy backfires. That complaining spirit diminishes over time. Know your particular weakness. 
Are you a people pleaser? Deepen your friendship with God. Let His pleasure be the one you most desire and quieten the influence of other voices around you. Are you the dominant type with a creeping disrespect towards the authority structure, unresolved in your so-called less influential person? Go back to strategy one. Take it to God as the key. Finally, know your why. It's all too easy to give in to temptation. And someone once said, only Jesus ever felt the full weight of temptation. The rest of us, the temptation ends when we give in. But Jesus faced it to the end and never succumbed. He alone faced the fullness of temptation and overcome. It's so hard. Why would you want to commit to such strain and effort your whole life? Know your why. Know your why. Why would you want to put in that kind of effort? My why was fear of bringing shame to my loved ones. Jesus' why was not my will, but your will, dear Father. My why kept me all these years, and I am grateful. In the sermon, in preparing this sermon, the Spirit has been prompting me. It's also time for me to grow up in my why. But you know what? When we do these things, we start to grow an authentic faith, at least in respect of discontent, murmurings, and complaining. And what a powerful testimony that would be of the church arising from a mire of dissatisfaction, rising to be a beacon of hope and joy when there is so much hopelessness. Let us pray. Father, would you make us a contented people where gratitude flows more freely than complaints? Make us brokers of hope in a world of hopelessness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.